morning. Today's scripture reading is from Judges 4, 4 through 24. At that time, Deborah, a prophet, wife of Lapido, was judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Position yourself at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him unto your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 warriors went behind him, and Deborah went up with him. Now Eber, the Kenite, had separated from the other Kenites, that is, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had encamped as far away as Elan Bezananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the troops who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoim to the Wadi Kishan. Then Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera unto your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him. And the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. While Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoim, all the army of Sisera fell by the sword not one was left. Now Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Yael, wife of Eber, the Kenite. For there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the clan of Eber, the Kenite. Yael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, have no fear. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with the rug. Then he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. He said to her, Stand at the entrance of the tent, and if nobody comes and asks you, is anyone here? If anybody comes and asks you if anyone is here, say no. But Yael, wife of Eber, took the tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. He was lying fast asleep from weariness, and he died. Then as Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, Yael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there was Sisera lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. Then the hand of the Israelites bore harder and harder on King Jabin of Canaan, until they destroyed King Jabin of Canaan. This is the word of God for the people of God.
<laughs> she practiced. Thank you, Audrey, for being willing to share that difficult story. It's a difficult story in many ways, the pronunciation being one of them. So thank you so much for that. Let's take a deep breath. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight this morning for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <laughs> Audrey could record the reading of the Bible for us. I would listen to that. So a few weeks ago, now I overheard a conversation between Natalie, our seven-year-old, and Augie, our six-year-old. This was just after they met their teachers. It was just after they had seen their new classrooms, just after they sat in their new desks. So the excitement about the new school year was growing, and so was the anxiety. So I heard Natalie ask Augie, Augie, would you like me to walk you to your classroom tomorrow morning? Yes, please, he said without hesitation. And you know, I almost cried because these kids are 13 months apart and they fight like cats and dogs most of the time. So just to be reminded that when it is important, when it really matters, they show up for each other was a really great gift for their mother. Thanks be to God for that. Walking to the classroom on a first day of school may not seem like a big deal, but we are so tired of walking. All of us. We're not sure where we're going anymore. We're scared of where the path may take us. With everything that has changed in the last two and a half years, we know we can't go back, even if we want to. We know we have to go forward. But we also know that's going to require us to let go of things that are no longer serving us. That's one reason we're experiencing what has come to be known as the Great Resignation, in which 33 million Americans have left their jobs since the spring of 2021. That would be one year after they began struggling with low wages and childcare challenges and concerns about public health in the midst of a pandemic. Some people were able to quit to be with their families. Some people were able to claim early retirement because the strain had just become too much to bear and they had that option. We see this strain in the service industry as restaurants and hotels and airlines struggle to keep the workforce at sustainable levels. We see it in public education as one in four teachers have left their positions, creating a national shortage of educators in our classrooms. And we see it in the church as almost 40% of pastors have left or considered leaving the ministry, citing burnout and fatigue at record levels. Truly people from every walk of life are being affected either financially, mentally, emotionally, socially, or spiritually. We struggle in part because we think we have to go through this struggle alone. Perhaps we don't want to be a burden. 
Perhaps we think we don't have anyone to ask for help. Perhaps we're simply ashamed. Sometimes we need to know that someone has our back. Someone like Deborah. Deborah is the second leader of the Hebrew people whose voice catches our attention in our current worship series, She Speaks, Four Powerful Quotes from Four Powerful Women. We launched the series last week as we recognized that the stories of only 93 women are told in our Bible, and only 49 of those women are mentioned by name. To help us remember some of these names, we're going to play a game this morning, and it's called Who Am I? I'm going to read a statement from the perspective of a woman whose story can be found in our Bible, and you have the opportunity to identify that person by name. Are you ready? Okay, number one. I prevented my baby brother from drowning in the Nile. Who am I? Miriam, yes, that's an easy one, right? We talked about Miriam and her bold question, shall I go, last week as we launched this series. So let's try it again. Number two, I dared to start a new life with my daughter-in-law in my homeland. Who am I? Naomi. Yeah, Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth. We often hear from Ruth. We don't as often hear from Naomi, so we will hear more from her next week. Question number three. I risked my life to save my people by speaking up without permission. Who am I? Esther. Yes, Margaret, yes. Esther, the queen of Persia. We'll conclude our series with the words of Esther at the end of the month. Number four, I am the prophetess who spoke of the healing work of Jesus when he was just a baby. Who am I? Anna. That's right. Anna is not part of our current series, but she would be a good candidate for the next round of She Speaks. Her story is in the famous Luke chapter 2. And our final question I was the only woman to lead the people of Israel as a judge. Who am I? Uh, Deborah. The woman of the day, the only woman to ever serve as a judge of Israel. Just a word about the judges. Judges served as administrators and military leaders of the Hebrew people. Twelve judges served in all, one right after the other, for a period of more than 400 years. We're talking about somewhere between 410 and 435 years. And this is before the monarchy with King David was established. Our text for today is a challenging one, not just because of all the unfamiliar names that Audrey read for us, but because of the background that we are given before Deborah's name appears. We're told in the beginning of Judges chapter 4 that the Israelites are struggling again. They have been behaving in ways that are not good for them. And once again, they find themselves in slavery. And they're crying out to God to release them. We can't go too far in this story without acknowledging the violence that is attributed to God. Truly, stories like these give the impression that God is vengeful and bloodthirsty. So as we read these stories, it's important that we remember that in that day and time, everything was attributed to God. Everything. Rain and drought, peace and war, 
birth and death, all of it was directly attributed to the hand of God. So when we see phrases like the Lord sold them into slavery, as we see in Judges chapter 4, we would do well to approach the text with curiosity. These texts can be so damaging when they are taken out of context. They have been used to justify the oppression of whole people groups, and we can use them to justify our own tendency toward vengeance as well. So when we are reading stories from our texts that implicate God in violence, we can process these texts in a few ways. I'm going to share four of those ways with you this morning, and they're not original to me, but I do find going through this process to be helpful. First, we could, when we encounter violent texts, especially in which God is portrayed as violent, we could reject that text altogether. We could say that's not in line with God, especially as we know him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, especially as we know her or them, however you imagine God. But these texts are in our Bible, so it's difficult to just set them aside completely. Or we could reinterpret these passages and make them less offensive. That's tempting, too, but we have to deal with the words as they are presented we could affirm the violence, simply saying that God has every right to judge and destroy the world. God created the world, after all. Or we could keep the story in its context. We could contextualize it, not just in terms of the history, which we do quite often, but in terms of the redemptive narrative, the redemptive way that God works from beginning to end in the Bible and in our lives. It could be tricky especially in stories like this one with the violent action of Jael or Yael, not Deborah, gets the spotlight. It's hard to compete with the way Jael used a tent peg to take out an enemy of Israel who presumed that she was an ally. But Jael's courage and her action, they get quite a bit of press in the story to the point that you might have known her name before you knew Deborah's. But it's Deborah's faithfulness that lays the foundation for this story. It's her faithfulness that brought the people to victory. As an administrator and a military leader, Deborah has a plan. She has a strategy that she believes is God-ordained. And she shares that story with one of her top leaders, telling him exactly what to do to secure victory. And he agrees but only if she will lead the way. I will go with you, she told Barak. And so the plan unfolds slightly differently because Barak's request would change Deborah's location, but they stick together, and thanks to Jael's quick thinking, the Israelites prevail and their freedom is restored. It's still easy to get lost in the fear and the violence so easy that we might miss not only the power of Deborah's words, but the power of her actions. Because instead of insisting on sticking to the original plan as she understood it, Deborah chose to remain. She chose to stick with Barak in his time of need. That willingness to stay present and to express solidarity, to walk with, is something that Deborah had experienced firsthand with God 
as a judge. God remained with her, walked with her. And this is the hope. This is the good news of this difficult story. We serve a God who walks with us. We see it over and over again. God walks with the people, leads the people through the wilderness. God walks with the people in the person of Jesus. God walks with us in the power of the Holy Spirit, and God walks with us in community with each other. That's all part of this pattern of God's behavior that we briefly mentioned last week. And as I just alluded, this pattern is about redemption. It's about redemption of the world. And it works like this. God hears the cries of the people. God sees the suffering of the people. God has compassion for the people. And God is moved to save the people. This certainly was the cycle that we find in the book of Judges as God raised up one leader right after the other, just when the people found themselves in the most difficult and painful of situations. This is the path that God still walks with us, and it's the path that we are called to walk with each other as well. Now, this path is not linear, as this image might suggest, because no experience with suffering is, which is why we need to watch our steps. The best way we can do this is cultivate a willingness to walk with each other, to walk the extra mile. And as we do so, we will discover that walking the extra mile is good for us too. And that's why I really believe that Natalie wants to walk with Augie. Because as she walks with him, he is walking with her too. She has a little bit further to go to get to her own classroom, but she is fueled by that connection that she has just made along the way, which is such a beautiful thing to consider. Would you say we live in a culture that is obsessed with counting our 10,000 steps a day? So I've been wondering lately, how do we count our spiritual steps? And are we counting them? One thing I remember from my long-distance running days is that the journey is much more pleasant with a buddy, whether we're talking about three miles or 26.2. So what if we took some time this week to consider, are we mindful of our spiritual steps? And do we have a spiritual walking buddy? Are we mindful of our spiritual steps? Are we intentional about growing in our faith? Are we engaging in the spiritual practices beyond Sunday morning, such as silence and solitude, prayer and meditation, scripture reading and study? If you want to learn more about a variety of spiritual practices, you can join Pastor's Bible Study on Wednesday night at 6 right here in this room or online. We're going through this book called Sacred Rhythms about incorporating spiritual practices into our daily lives. And do you have a spiritual walking buddy? Do you talk regularly with a spiritual director? Do you belong to a small group? Do you pray not only for people, but with people? Do you study and learn and grow with others? in your life. It makes a difference because even if you think you don't need the support, someone in your life needs the support from you. In fact, your church 
needs that. Your church needs you to walk with her, your staff, your pastor. We invite you to walk with us as we as we lean into our vision in new ways in these challenging times. There are many ways that you can do that, many ways that you are already doing that, but I have three very specific invitations for you this morning. The first is by listening and sharing through the surveys that are going on right now. The current one, of course, is about our worship together. You can find those right here in the sanctuary on a piece of paper, but also in the Star Weekly on Monday afternoons. Your input matters as we gather information to make the best decisions for our community of faith. The second invitation I want to make this morning is to the Holy Excavations workshop that's taking place on Saturday. Stuart already mentioned that it will take place from nine to four, and I do understand that that is an all-day commitment, and I don't take that lightly, but the conversation will be worth it. The conversation will be structured around four questions, two in the morning, two in the afternoon, designed to help us really focus on who God is calling us to be and what God is calling us to do right now. Not two and a half years ago, not five years ago, not 10 years ago, not when the church was founded, but right now as the community of Morningstar. Everyone is welcome to participate. We do need the RSVP for the reasons that Stuart mentioned. So please let us know today whether you will be attending. The third invitation is to our annual charge conference. This will take place on Sunday, September the 25th at 2.30 p.m. right here in this room. If you want to know more about the direction of Morningstar, if you want to take part in shaping the direction of Morningstar, this is an important meeting for you to attend, and all are welcome. Truly beloved, we are given so many ways to walk with each other in life and in faith. So I'm wondering right now if we could take a deep breath and we can truly begin to consider who needs to hear I will go with you from you. Amen? Amen. <laughs>